You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is the only, only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell, will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our Father, we are thankful that indeed this sermon was delivered to Jerusalem from Peter, and we are thankful for your servant Luke for recording it for us, that we might ourselves hear and believe. We pray that you would use this text from Acts 2 this evening to lift our eyes to Jesus, that you might cause some to even repent and believe for the first time. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Spirit for our good and for the sake of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, I don't know if some of you aren't old enough, but man, it felt like 1989 up in here uh, when Joanna was singing that song, and it felt great. Uh, that's, a, that's a warm song in my soul. Uh, so thanks, guys, for leading and singing that prayer from David. Uh, man, uh, I've really enjoyed the first chapter and a half of the book of Acts so far. I've been really challenged and confronted in just the marginalizing of the power and personal presence of the Spirit in my life. I've been confronted and challenged in the marginalizing of the mission of God through me to the unbelieving world around me, just in the first chapter and a half. We've got a long way to go. We've seen that even though Luke has said that his method of writing the book of Acts, and in fact, his first book of Luke is to gather an orderly account of these events. Uh, this book isn't just a, a newspaper retelling of the facts as they happen. These events are firmly placed in a significant time and place. The early church is certainly looking around at the present realities as they're happening. They're looking forward to the future, but mostly they are looking back toward the past. Past events that are now shaping their present and their future, specifically the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, and what that now means for them in the present. Most generations have kind of like a seminal moment like this. Uh, There was like life before December 7th, 1941, and our grandparents, or some of you, your great-grandparents' generation, life before the war and life after the war. Many would say that the 1960s didn't really begin until November 22nd, 1963, with the assassination of President Kennedy. Like, Kennedy's presidency was from 1960 to 1963, but it was really a 1950s presidency. Things, there was like life before and life after that assassination. The 2000s didn't begin until a year and a half later, September 11th, 2001. There was life before and there was life after that moment. And while this pandemic doesn't have like an indelible moment or a day like that, I'm pretty sure the rest of our lives and much of cultural history will remember life before 2020 and life after 2020. Well, the biggest calendar turnover in all of human history happened at the resurrection of Jesus. Only in these days, the world didn't know it. There was no Good Morning America live cameras rolling on the tomb that day, no Walter Cronkite breaking in with the news, no presidential addresses. Most of the city of Jerusalem woke up on Easter morning like every other Sunday morning, the morning after the Sabbath as they now began and prepared their week. Certainly, if in Jerusalem, then Asia and Africa and Europe and the Americas and even the halls of Rome would not have registered any activity on the Richter scale of world events of that Sunday morning. But when Jesus of Nazareth inhaled and opened his eyes, when his heart began beating again, his brain began firing, his cellular cellular biology being recreated, while the very fabric of the universe was also being similarly recreated. Last week, we saw Jesus' disciples, who were initially fearful and dismayed. They were 
hopeless and confused, they had now been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And being filled with this Spirit, they, began, they then began to leave the house and, uh, where they had been staying and waiting, and then began, they began to open their mouths as witnesses to what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had experienced, what they had received. Like, imagine if you had been a bystander at Dealey Plaza as President Kennedy's motorcade went by, and you heard and you saw the shots, wherever those might have come from. Uh, a witness you were now to one of the most important events in, hist- in the history of our republic. You would want anyone and everyone in your life to now hear of your perspective of what you have seen, what you have witnessed. You would want the police or the Secret Service uh, to hear of what you saw in their investigation. You would want reporters to hear of what you saw as they file their stories. You would want your family members and your neighbors who weren't there to hear of what you saw and have experienced. The apostles, with Peter as their spokesman now, they've called a press conference. They've called a press conference to announce what they have witnessed, what they have seen, what they have experienced, and what they have received. The news must get out. And perhaps, perhaps because of your familiarity with the Bible, you've read the book of Acts many times. You know about where this story is going. You've known about Peter in his life for so much of your life. And it doesn't perhaps strike you as all that remarkable. But Acts 2 is remarkable. Peter is an uneducated, backwoods fisherman who, in Luke's gospel, the last time we saw him open his mouth was in a cowardly denial of Jesus. And now he steps up to the microphone, not in timidity, not with like a, uh, excuse me, is this thing on? Uh, But he comes up with power, perhaps preaching the kinds of sermons that he had heard Jesus preaching about himself in the 40 days that he was with the disciples. And he steps up with power, with like a theological tour de force. Tonight we're going to break our sermon into three parts. The first two focusing on Peter's sermon. where He focuses on the promised spirit and then the promised Christ. And then we'll zoom back out a little bit into the narrative where we'll finally and thirdly consider the promise received. The promised Christ, the promised, or the promised spirit, the promised Christ, and then the promise received. First of all, the apostles, along with the rest of the 120 who had received the spirit in the first half of Acts 2, they are out and about proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. They're speaking to Jerusalem, and the rest of the city, uh, now hearing them, these uh, hearing these 120 speaking all of the languages of all of these pilgriming uh, Pentecost Jews who are in the city, these pilgrims accuse the 120 of being drunk. They don't understand what is happening at all. And so Peter stands up in front of this huge crowd, and we read this in verse 14. He stands with the 11, lifting his voice, and he addressed them. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. No one's drunk here. It's still morning. Instead, let me explain what's going on. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2. This is not drunkenness that you are witnessing and observing, but it is Joel 2 that you are witnessing and observing. Joel is a short prophetic book in the Old Testament in which the people of God are walking in continual disobedience and unrepentance. And Joel, this prophet, is pleading with the people to repent from their former ways, from their rejection of God. 
He's pleading with them to turn and instead now follow God. And Joel looks toward a day, a time in the future in which the many other prophets along with him often call the day of the Lord. They are, Joel and the prophets are looking forward to the day of the Lord, which is a day of simultaneous judgment and salvation. Because God is slow to anger and he is gracious and he is merciful and he is patient because he doesn't just destroy the world in its wickedness and humanity's hatred for God or for each other. God is instead kind to give messengers like Joel and here like Peter to offer these warnings, to offer calls to repentance. And so Peter says, in those days, the time of the day of the Lord amidst judgment, well, Joel is looking forward to seeing a time in which God would pour out his spirit on those who would repent. Not just like on an isolated prophet or an isolated king or a warrior for a time or for a season, for a task, but on all people, on men, on women, on young, and on old. And that is what has just happened here. Peter is saying, Joel 2 is here. The day of the Lord is here. The last days are here. Judgment is here, and salvation is here. There is an equalizing, a leveling, an indiscriminating pouring out of the Spirit on the poor and the uneducated, amongst the Galileans even. We often talk about this at Christmas time, how incredible it is that in humility, uh, Christ incarnate is born in a stable in Bethlehem. He's not born in a temple in the halls of religious power. He's not born in Rome, the halls of political or military power, but amongst the barn animals to a disreputable teenage mother. This is incredible. So too here, we might expect God to start his kingdom movement with a real move of power. You know, like start the thing off on the right foot. Maybe like pouring out the spirit on Caiaphas, the high priest. And the Sanhedrin now receiving the Spirit, and they began, they began in Jerusalem to testify about Christ, the Messiah. Maybe he would pour out his Spirit on Herod or even the Roman Pilate. That ought to start the fire. But God is not impressed with your worldly position, your place of influence. He pours his Spirit out on 120 country hicks with accents. Why? Well, because they have been with Jesus. Because they have now come to trust him as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Because they have learned from him. They have come to him as their mighty king, but also they have come to him because he is gentle and lowly in spirit, and they have found rest for their souls as their, with him as their shepherd. And in coming to God the Son as the very wisdom of of God, as the righteousness of God, as the love of God, they have now received the Spirit of God. History has swelled. It has culminated. It has crested, and it has crashed in the pouring out of God the Spirit. Joel 2 is here for all who would believe. Now, I need to correct and amend something that I regrettably said last week. When I said that in Acts 2, uh, that's the only time in the book of Acts where people are speaking in tongues and in languages, as many of you have humbly pointed out this week. Uh, this is obviously not true, as the same thing happens to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. We'll have much more to think about and say when we get to Acts 10, but my point from last week still stands. 
as perhaps I wasn't very clear in saying it though, that Acts 10 marks a, another huge turning point in the history of salvation in which the Gentiles receive the Spirit. In Acts 10, after Luke tells us what, about what happens to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, then Peter repeats the whole story that then Luke repeats again for us as Peter's telling uh, the whole thing to the apostles. He says the same thing that happened to us in Jerusalem way back in Acts 2 has now just happened in, to the Gentiles in Acts 10. They're like, what are we going to do about this? Like, are we really going to allow God to save the Gentiles? Are we going to allow God to pour the Spirit out on Gentiles too? To which their answer is, well, yeah, I guess so. It appears what we did not quite understand, God is doing something global, even though we should have known this from what Jesus told them in chapter 1, that he would move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, pouring out the Spirit on the Jews and then pouring out the Spirit on the Gentiles, or as Paul would say in Romans 1, to the Jew first and also the Greeks. And so there is a initial pouring out of the Spirit on God's people, God's ethnic people, the Jews, and then a, another initial pouring out of the Spirit on the rest of the world. And now back to Peter's sermon, Joel 2 is happening, people. He says, everything that you have read about and hoped about in the book of Joel, it is happening before your very eyes. This is not drunkenness. But don't forget what Joel says. In verse 21, Peter says, quoting from Joel, where Joel says, and it shall come to pass in those days, the day of the Lord, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The last days are upon us. The Spirit is here. This is not drunkenness. But we are witnesses to the mighty acts of God in time and space, in the person and the work of Jesus. And then, surprisingly, or maybe perhaps not surprisingly, the rest of Peter's sermon then redirects the focus not on, like, the power of the Spirit, but he redirects and doubles down on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is certainly promised and comes, but now, secondly, the promised Christ. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is, shall we say, not very interested in starting a seeker-sensitive movement uh, and making clear what Jesus was teaching in his parable about the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20, where the tenants of the vineyard, they despise, they beat, they kick out the owner's servants of the vineyard. If these servants have come to reap the harvest and the tenants who are living there, they kick all of these servants out. So then the vineyard owner, he sends his very son. Surely they will listen to him but him, these tenants kill. Jesus of Nazareth was attested to, was confirmed by God the Father with miraculous works. He was confirmed by God with very wise teaching. But Peter is saying, maybe, maybe you didn't realize. Maybe then you didn't even realize that he was the Christ, but you should have at least understood that he had come from God. And yet you killed him. Unless you say, 
hey, we didn't kill him. The, the Romans, they, they were the ones that killed him. Well, no, Peter says, he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless, of Roman men. You were using the Romans like your puppets to pull off the single most sinfully wicked act of all time. The height of rebellion, the killing of your Messiah, the execution of the high king of heaven and earth, treason. But God, God was not caught unaware of this after the death of Christ. God the Father is not like trying to figure out some way to make good of all of these bad events. He's not just trying to make lemonade when his people have rejected him by giving him lemons. The crucifixion of Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It could not have happened any other way. To reiterate some of the theology of Exodus when we were thinking through that book about a year and a half ago, considering God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The plan for the redemption of mankind that was being moved along, not accidentally, but intentionally, so that there was no way possible that it could not have happened in the way it did, no alternative world or timeline where Jesus is somehow not crucified, then it must also be true that God is somehow moving through and intending for humanity to participate in the greatest act of sinful rebellion in our history, the killing of our God. That is, it was the ordained and predestined plan of God for Judas to betray the Lord. It was the ordained and predestined plan of God for Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders to try him and to reject him. It was the ordained and predestined plan of God for Pilate to deliver him to individual Roman soldiers who would then nail six-inch spikes through his hands and his feet, one hammer blow at a time, and then later for a spear to run through his side. So what did I just say or suggest? That God somehow causes or forces individuals to sin? No. James 1, 13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Or John 1, 5 tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God does not force or, or coerce otherwise good-intentioned folks to robotically and against their will sin. In large and wicked acts or in smaller acts of idolatry or false worship. And yet, we must also affirm that God does move and act through the ordained wickedness of humanity. Remember, in the book of Habakkuk that we thought through a few months ago, Habakkuk is nearly all about how the wicked Babylonian army nevertheless brings about God's purposes of disciplining and even punishing Israel for their wickedness. No matter what choice we make, we will always choose that which we most desire. Judas is not a robot, but he is convinced that betrayal is the most preferred course of action. The Roman soldiers nailing nails through Jesus' hands and feet. Uh, these, are, these soldiers are not robots. But they are convinced that what they are doing is good, is preferable, is right. And given that in most choices there is an inobservably complex chain of events to lead a person to choose vanilla ice cream over chocolate or to choose to betray the Lord Jesus or not. We are always choosing because it is 
the choice or the decision of our greatest desire. These are free choices chosen freely, and yet they are also constrained by a million causes and effects that have led a person to that point in time and space. And so, as we considered in Exodus, the Baptist Second London Confession in 1689, based on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says this, that God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. Now, that's not the Bible. That's not inerrant. I think it's right, based on the whole of the scriptures. And so adapting from Pharaoh, we might say that Pharaoh, Judas, Caiaphas, Pilate, freely chose to do what God had freely chosen that they would do. I know our brains are about to explode, and you might have many theological or philosophical objections to some of this, but I think this is what Peter is preaching. And this is a big God that he is preaching, one that is holy, one that is just, one that is merciful, and one that is sovereign over all creation, one that is too big to even comprehend. The rejection of God the Son was the plan of God the Father, that he might exalt God the Son in order to then give God the Spirit. This is the definite and foreordained plan of our triune God. The ground and the grave, death itself, was no rival, was no competition, was powerless to hold God the Son. Jesus of Nazareth is Christ our Messiah, but because he has conquered sin and death. And Peter says, we should have, all of us, seen this coming. Or as Jesus taught us to often say, like, have you not read? And I think this is what Peter is implying to Jerusalem. Have you not read the scriptures? Peter doesn't here give us a bunch of like, of all of like Jesus's moral and ethical teachings. He's not getting up and tapping the microphone and saying, hey, here's some really interesting and groovy proverbs from Jesus that he taught us. He doesn't tell Jerusalem to now treat others as they would want to be treated, as important as that is. He doesn't even begin to now admonish or confront Jerusalem and how they ought to care for the poor or the outcast, as important as that is. But all of that must come in first reckoning with who Jesus is. What these human beings must first come to grips with is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so Peter quotes from Psalm 16, a psalm that we considered together last month, a psalm in which most folks in these days might have thought that David in Psalm 16 was talking about himself, that God would be forever faithful to David. But David had to have been talking about someone else in Psalm 16, when David said that God would not abandon him in the grave or let his body decay to corruption. And so backing out of Psalm 16, Peter says, hey, look, everybody, like, have you not read and have we not considered? How do we know that David was looking forward to a greater king, a greater descendant of his? Well, because David is still dead. While the location of David's tomb is now lost to history, apparently in these days they were still aware of where he was buried. 
He says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Like if we wanted to, we could go open it up and find his bones. This is surely not himself that he is talking about here in Psalm 16. David ain't walking around right now. Psalm 16 wasn't actually about him, but was about one to come. And who is it? Well, the one who shattered death. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Messiah, the anointed Christ, the one set apart to reign and rule to bring us to God. Or as we said, and we were thinking about Psalm 16, the acid test for the Psalm 16 man is that he cannot die and stay dead. Jesus of Nazareth is the Psalm 16 man. And just quickly, because I told Jacob Covell a few weeks ago, uh, when he was reading Acts 2, the same week that we were preaching through Acts, or Psalm 16, uh, Peter is quoting from the Septuagint here, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the Greek Old Testament he's quoting from, rather than the original Hebrew that we read in our Old Testaments. Uh, that's, that's why the language, if you read Peter's sermon from Psalm 16, and then you flip back over to your Old Testament and read Psalm 16, the language doesn't quite match. Like he's quoting from the NIV when the Old Testament is the ESV or something like that. That's a terrible analogy, but perhaps you get the point. So Peter, he goes on to say, moving on from Psalm 16, that through the death of, only through the death of Christ can Jesus be exalted in resurrection power. In verse 32, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Everything that you're seeing and hearing right now is because God raised Jesus from the dead and brought him to ascension power. He is exalted through death and resurrection. Jesus is our high priest and king, entering into the holy places and then taking his throne. No one else can do that. David can't do that. And the spirit that he now pours out is not just the spirit of holiness, not just the spirit of the very presence of God, but it is the spirit that he now pours out in resurrection power. It is the spirit of Jesus's ascended security. It is the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. And then in his last Old Testament reference, Peter then quotes from Psalm 110. He's just moving on. He's like, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? And Psalm 110 is a psalm that Jesus himself quoted in a moment of like theological jujitsu to disarm the Pharisees when they thought that they had him trapped in Jerusalem. And perhaps in this crowd, some of the very Pharisees that thought that they had come to or thought that they had Jesus trapped Perhaps some of those very same Pharisees, remembering when Jesus was teaching on Psalm 110, now they hear Peter really making it clear. And it's not as clear in our English Bibles or in the Greek of Acts, but in, if, you, if you had a, a Hebrew Bible and you're flipping over to Psalm 110, you would be able to see that David says, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, Yahweh said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to my master, to my ruler. Yahweh said to my king, my ruler, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Dave, here's what David is saying. David is saying in Psalm 110, David sees God the Father speaking then to David's Lord, to his king, to his ruler, his master. So he sees Yahweh 
speaking to his ruler, his master, who then gives David's ruler and master the kingdom. He doesn't give his kingdom to David, but to David's king. And who is this king that David was looking for, was looking toward? And just in case you were still thinking that there might still be, maybe when Peter came up to the microphone, he, maybe he set up some like smoke machines behind him and some lights and some swelling music in order to elicit the right kind of response. All of that goes out the window when he says this about the Psalm 110 king in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, this is not like some like anti-Semitic rant or something. Peter himself is a Jew. And in fact, many of these Jews are coming to believe in the name of Christ. So this is not anti-Semitism. It is just the people that were there who rejected their Christ as king. And this Christ, this traveling rabbi from the look-down-upon people from the north, from Galilee, even worse, from Nazareth, the one that Jerusalem had mocked, had spit on, who had rushed through in a sham trial and had manipulated the Romans into crucifying for them, he is actually the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is Israel's king. He is not dead, but he is risen. He is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father and at this very second, and he will reign there over the entire cosmos until all of his enemies are conquered. Who is Jesus? This is the most important question that any human could ever ask and could ever answer. Peter has just preached that Jesus is the Christ. He is our substitute, dying the death that we deserve, dying for our treasonous rebellion that put him on the cross in the first place. But he is also our righteousness, living the life that we should have lived and conquering our death and our treason through his death. He has conquered his death and ours. He is the high king of heaven and earth, and we owe him our worship and our loyalty. He is our high priest, gaining us access to God. Now, O Jerusalem, Peter drops the mic and essentially implies, what are you going to do about it? Jesus of Nazareth is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is receiving the kingdom until all of his enemies are conquered. Drop the mic. Implication, what are you going to do, O enemies of God? How does Jerusalem respond? Well, now, having considered the promised spirit and the promised Christ, the promise received. Before we get to Jerusalem's response, uh, I have three ongoing and repeating dreams in my life. Uh, the first is that I have to preach, but I haven't prepared anything, or I have forgotten my notes. Uh, the second repeating dream that I have, probably once a month, is that it's math class in high school, but I haven't been to class in like a month, and now it's test day. Does anybody have this dream? Yes. It's always math for me. Uh, and the third repeating dream is that I'm driving a car, usually on a mountain road, and it's either icy or my brakes have gone out and I am just hurtling down this hill, driving out of control with nothing but disaster at the end of the road. 
So like, go ahead and psychoanalyze me all you want. Uh, like, that I subconsciously feel underprepared or that my life is totally out of control. I don't know. But Peter's audience here, and in fact, all of humanity, are this third dream of mine. On a mountain road with no brakes, careening wildly out of control with certain disaster ahead. The chapters leading up to the crucifixion in Luke, it is just chock full of Jesus' warnings to the people. Repent, believe, slow down, hear the warnings of God. There is a dangerous and precarious road ahead, and unless you align yourself with the kingdom of God, you are actually accelerating toward a cliff without brakes. There is imminent danger ahead. But now, unlike the times in Israel's past where they didn't listen to the warnings from the prophets, where they didn't listen to the warnings from Jesus, unlike two months ago when they were not listening to Jesus but crucifying him instead, now a huge number of them are cut to the heart. We don't really use this phrase very much, but it's like everything in them is now just laid bare. Their greatest hopes desires, their greatest insecurities and fears, their greatest sin now just spills out onto the table. They come to see themselves rightly before God, careening out of control with nothing but disaster ahead. They see themselves rightly as the very enemies of God. What shall we do? They ask. What must we do? Peter says, well, in this out-of-control car down the mountain road, just steer toward Jesus. He is standing there, not only to save you from certain death and eternal disaster, but he is there to transform your very trajectory of life. To now that you might walk alongside him in assurance and in security. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says. Joel 2 can be for you too. Turn, each of you, each of you here, a together group, a corporate group, a huge crowd made up of individual hearts, saying, yes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. Identify your life with Christ. Give him your trusting loyalty that his death and resurrection would become yours by faith. In other words, by giving him your trusting loyalty, be baptized. Join the company of his people who are marked by the sign of the new exodus, the new covenant people of God being rescued from slavery and death and being delivered through the waters of judgment now to freedom and life. In this first generation, these people were to become a repent and be baptized people. Or as one commentator puts it, they were to become a turn and be rescued people. Rescued from the willful and self-realizing disastrous end as enemies of God. And then, Peter not only says that this crowd of people should be a repent and be baptized people, or a turn and rescued, be rescued people, but also for your children who are also far off. And for those who are far off, those who are far off geographically, perhaps those of some of these Pentecost pilgrims would then go home to and share of this Christ 
with or for those who are far off in time. Jesus is not just a one-generation king like David or Solomon or something, but he is to be king and preached as king for eternity. And so, perhaps you are cut to the heart tonight. Perhaps you are even trying to resist feeling cut to the heart. While you didn't reject Jesus' works and teachings in person, like this first generation of people in Jerusalem, you did not personally manipulate the Romans to crucify him. Perhaps now you are actually realizing that you have all the same been rejecting him. Despite the testimony of the scriptures, despite the testimony of your friends, your Christian friends, you've been happy to tell Jesus, I will not sit under your rules for my life. Or perhaps you've been willing to just say, I'm happy to ignore you. If I don't acknowledge you as king of heaven and earth, if I don't acknowledge you as king of my life, then then I won't have to do anything about it. But the central act in all of history has happened. There is life before the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and there is life after. And we are all now living on this side of the cross. You can pretend that it hasn't happened, but you are still living on this side of Jesus' ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. Or maybe you're actually now beginning to understand, beginning to realize that it was for your sin that Jesus lived and died. That while you didn't deliver Jesus to the Romans or hammer the nails, it was because of your pride that Jesus came in humility. It was because of your love of self that Jesus died and lived in the love of God. It was because of your rebellion against God that Jesus lived and died in loyalty to God. It was because of your using other people in selfishness that Jesus gave himself for you out of selflessness. It was because of your weakness and your doubt and your anxiety and your fear that Jesus lived in strength and confidence and courage for your sake. Your life, now his life. His death for your death, your substitute. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Paul asks in Romans 7. Only to answer, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is comfort in the gospel. There is peace and assurance as Christ our King. And sure, every day we short-circuit our own joy by worshiping and submitting to all things other than Jesus as our King. But he is still patient and willing loving to welcome and absorb your rebellion and to make you a son and daughter of God. Turn and be rescued today. Repent and be baptized. Come to be united with Christ, our strong shepherd, and with his church, his weak and yet following sheep. 3,000 were added to their number that day. A harvest of repentance and belief. The first fruits of Joel 2, the first fruits of the greater worldwide harvest to come, both in the book of, the, book of Acts and beyond. Beyond geographically, all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico, a long way away from Jerusalem. 
and beyond in time, all the way to September 27th, 2020, a long way away from Jerusalem on this day. And yet, the most important question that any human can ask and answer is the most important question that this crowd must have reckoned with, asked, and answered. Who is Jesus? Now, what should you do? I'm just going to leave that hanging there. If you'd like to talk with, more about, uh, with us more about what it might look like to give your life in believing loyalty and the forgiveness of sins to Christ our King, we'd love to talk with you more about this. If Christ is King of the universe, even for those of us who have come to believe, now what does that mean for the next six hours? for the next 10 minutes, for the next minute of our hopes, our hearts, and our worship, our trust, and our assurance. Jesus is King, and He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, what do we do about that? I'm going to pray for us now, that we might come to a greater understanding and trust in what it means to know that Jesus is King. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do trust that You are not still in the grave. It is our very hope and desire, and for those of us who are claiming to be Christians, we are saying that our lives make no sense apart from the empty tomb. Help us to understand that reality and for it to be even more true in the minute by minute of our lives. You are good. You are right. Father, you have ordained and ordered this world in such a way that we might come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would act anew even tonight to bring faith where there is currently unbelief, to bring comfort where there is uh, fear, to bring assurance where there is doubt. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and help us to walk with him and before him, not perfectly and not always courageously, more often than not, weakly and in cowardice. But Father, we do trust that you would cause our hearts to be filled even more by your Spirit, that we might know and follow and love Jesus all the more for our own increasing joy and for your glory in our lives and in the world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.